You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual There's a lot I could talk about at the top of today's show. The Republican Party's new and horrible and obscene tax bill or Mike Lockerup Flynn's guilty plea. Lock his ass up. How about that? Or the mounting evidence that Trump is impaired and it's 25th Amendment time in the city. Or I could treat you all to my annual Christmas isn't sexy and there are already enough unsexy pictures of naked people in front of Christmas trees with bows on their junk. So there's no need for you to put that pic you took last night online ever. Rant. But – I think I'm going to open with a little sex advice instead. Unsolicited advice, everyone's favorite kind. This is for the guys out there who are worried that the current cultural reckoning about sexual assault and harassment, or as some have called it, this witch hunt, but actually it's a warlock hunt and there are way more warlocks out there than anyone realized and those bastards probably needed culling. Anyway, some guys out there are worried that this reckoning is going to put an end to flirting and criminalize any quote-unquote workplace romances. My leaping off point today for the opening of the show is the letter I got at Savage Love. This guy writes, The initial approach to another person must happen without consent. In the ideal world, such an approach would always be respectful. And if the approach is declined, the no would be respected. Similarly, there will almost always be some level of power difference between people. I would rather live in a world where women were empowered to say no or yes if they desired, regardless of a power differential. I want to live in a world where a president could ask an intern, hey, you wanna? And the intern could say, tempting, but no. Perhaps if enough people in positions of power made a public commitment to respecting no, we could eliminate the implied threat. If no is a perfectly acceptable response to an approach, even with a power differential, then men will have more freedom to ask. Yeah, because if there's anything we've learned over the last couple of months, it's that men don't feel free to ask or grab. All right, that's unfair. Let me back up just a little bit. Shitty men feel free to ask and or grab. Shitty men feel entitled to do whatever the hell they want, while conscientious men are more cautious and thoughtful and respectful. Perhaps some are so cautious and thoughtful and respectful that they can't even bring themselves to make an approach at all. And maybe, yeah, maybe if we lived in a world... Where all things were equal, men and women for starters, the social norms proposed by my reader here would be workable. Men could ask for whatever they want, and women, women could say no without fear. And presumably women could ask too if, you know, women experienced sexual desire in the absence of malattention. But we don't live in that world, and I don't see that world coming into existence anytime soon. That said, I do think consent can exist in the presence of a power differential. It often does. And the initial approach, asking someone out, asking someone if they might be up for dinner or drinks or dick, often exists, yes, in a kind of pre-consensual limbo. You don't know that the answer is no until you ask. And if someone asks you out respectfully and you say no and they leave you alone and don't bother you or ask you out again and again and again – and there isn't a huge power differential that makes just an ask feel coercive, that's not sexual harassment. But guys, guys, you have to remember, we have to remember that women are socialized to defer to men and that we are all primates hardwired to defer to power. 
Sometimes we abuse our power over others knowingly and maliciously, looking at you, Harvey Weinstein. Sometimes we aren't considering our relative power and wind up abusing it thoughtlessly. And then there's violence. We have to factor that into the conversation, too. We have to remember that, too. A dude making that initial approach can feel as if he's framing it in an entirely non-threatening manner, rolling it out in a non-threatening manner. The intent of the approacher, usually male, can be non-threatening. The approacher can be ready to hear that no and respect that no, but the approachee, usually female, can experience that approach very differently. Because men don't move through their lives deflecting near constant unwanted sexual attention. And we aren't subjected to epidemic levels of sexual violence. And consequently, we don't live with the daily fear that we could be the victims of sexual violence at any time and in any place like Matt Lauer's office. Women do live with that fear daily. So there's often a huge disconnect between what a man thinks he's doing and how a woman experiences what that man is doing, because her perceptions are shaped by the experience and fear of sexual violence. Now, some men get this. They're aware, they're woke, and their aware wokeness informs their approach in a really positive way. They've worked out how to make that initial approach to a woman in a way that feels safe and empowers her to say no. Other men are aware of these dynamics and intentionally and maliciously exploit them to get what they want. They intimidate and they pressure. The rest, perhaps most men, are just oblivious to it. You know, I have an idea that I think would help, a little something that I frequently advise people to do that I would love to see broadly adopted. Because I think it would help if all people making that initial approach, men and women, queer and straight, strangers and familiars, invited a no explicitly and pledged to respect that no as a preamble to the approach before the ask. Hey, I wanted to ask you something, but first, I want you to know that if the answer is no, You can say no, I won't argue with you or hold it against you or sulk or get weird, I promise in advance. All right, what I wanted to ask you was dot, dot, dot. Finally, a quick word about socialization, something that keeps coming up in these conversations about how we're going to address this problem. I wanted to vote up or upvote, however you say that, something feminist author, essayist, and polemicist Laura Kipnis said on I Have to Ask, Isaac Chotner's excellent podcast. You know, it is really the case that in conventional femininity, a sort of fearfulness about sexual matters is, you know, is is part of the deal. Um, And I do think that's something that we could all try to unlearn, um, particularly those of us women who are the most afflicted by it. I mean, if we're asking men to unlearn elements of male socialization, the question I ask is, are there elements of female socialization that we also might want to ditch and that impede us in, you know, uh, the, the workplace or in, you know, moving comfortably through the social world. Women are asking, women are demanding that men unlearn some of the things we're socialized to believe, that we are entitled to women's bodies, that women's bodies are our property. It's something that gay men have to unlearn too, myself included. At the same time, we do need to ditch, as Kipnis said, some aspects of female socialization. We can do both these things at the same time submissiveness, deference to men, got to be ditched. But before we can do that, if we're ever going to do that, we have to tackle violence. That's the lock we must pick. That is the keystone. Female fear, that cowering that Kipnis talks about, it doesn't exist and isn't perpetuated in a vacuum. It is informed and reinforced by sexual violence, male violence, targeting women. 
So why can't she just say no? Why aren't women free to say no? Someone tweeted that out. Women should just say no. And someone responded by tweeting out links to stories about women who did say no to strangers on the street or classmates or people they knew and were murdered by the men they said no to. So long as women live in fear, again, a fear that far too many men are oblivious to, nothing will be easy, nothing will change, and no one will be free. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, the weirdest gift offer I've ever heard, someone getting sex shamed at an Airbnb, and on the Magnum subscription edition, the Magnum subscription ad-free, twice as long edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Stand-up comedian Cameron Esposito joins us to talk about her new album with her wife, Rhea Butcher, and to help a listener with a problem concerning weed. All that coming up. Hi, Dan. Early 20s college student out here in the Southwest, and I had a kind of an odd question maybe you can help me with. So long story short, I started seeing this girl back in, I want to say April. And, you know, we were just physical, you know, nothing too big. I just got out of, out of a relationship the previous month. So did she. And then, you know, we just basically were just physical. And then it turned into something more. And long story short, uh, now since it's November, we finally decided to be like, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, as it were. And it's odd for me because I'm, I mean, I hate to use this term, but I'm used to dating crazy girls. Do you have any idea the last two relationships I had? One cheated on me constantly, threatened to kill herself after I found out and wanted to leave. And the other one turned out was engaged to another person while we were dating. As you can tell, that one didn't last very long because it's hard to keep a secret like that. This girl is very understanding about my busy schedule and I'm understanding about hers. And it's odd because it's like an actual adult relationship. And like, I feel kind of reprehensible about it because I'm not used to it. I mean, I care about this girl. I really, really do. I want to be with her and she wants to be with me and everything's fine. But is it normal to have this feeling of kind of oddness whenever you date someone that isn't, you know, insane? Are you disappointed that your new girlfriend isn't crazy like your exes were all crazy? Is it that you got used to being in relationships with people who generated a lot of drama? Are you one of those people who regards drama as proof of passion and proof of the intensity of the connection that say your ex with the fiance. Did you look at that and think, well, I'm so hot. I'm so attractive that this person was willing to risk all that or toss that all away. And that made the intensity of the connection or the sex or the moments that you did share with this person that much more titillating, that much more interesting and compelling. Are you a contributor to this, to the, to this dynamic that you keep ending up in relationships with girls who are, Nuts. Because I'm not sure why you're calling except to say, phew, you should be calling to say, oh my God, thank God I finally met somebody sane after a string of not very sane folks in my dating and romantic life. And sometimes we draw the short straw by accident several times in a row. Sometimes we need to look at the choices we're making and ask ourselves if we're intentionally seeking out this kind of drama and damage. So the fact that you called leads me to believe that on some level you might have been intentionally seeking out this kind of drama and damage. And there's something about the absence of it in your current relationship that has you doubting it or wondering whether you want to stay or wondering if there's something kind of photo negative, reverse image, double backflip wrong about the relationship that you're in because there's nothing wrong with the relationship that you're in. And you're used to there being something really wrong, a problem to solve in the relationships that you were in in the past. So, 
I would encourage you to think about the choices you made in the past. Think about whether they were intentional. Ask yourself what it is that you want. And if you want drama and conflict, get yourself a therapist because drama and conflict come in all relationships, all long-term relationships. However low conflict they are, whoever sane the person that you're with, no two people are a perfect fit. You don't have to seek out drama and complication and craziness because that will come in its own course. That will come in due time. You will have to pay that bill. It's almost like a little bit of drama and crazy builds up over time and every once in a while you get zapped by it and it just happens. You don't have to seek it out. But if you're just calling because you're dumbstruck by your luck and you needed to vent, you needed to share, then yay and props. But I suspect that you called because it's not just this is an unfamiliar feeling, being with someone who's low conflict, low drama, not crazy. But I wonder if you don't miss the conflict and drama and crazy. And if you do, if that's if I'm right, my hunch is right, and you on some level miss the drama, conflict, and crazy, and you think there's something wrong with your current relationship because it lacks those things, that's something you might want to unpack with a therapist about the choices you make and the kinds of people that you're attracted to. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old, mostly straight cis guy. Um, I've been with my partner for four years, and near the beginning of 2017, I started to realize that I'm poly, but my partner is struggling with this. My partner and I share finances, pets, a home, and a wonderful life together. The background is that I've had significant relationships in the past, one of which was longer than this one, and had always struggled to stay faithful to them. With my current partner, I haven't physically cheated, but this realization was spurred on by two emotional affairs over the course of the relationship. We've worked through these unconsciously managing my behavior uh, while we talk things through. My girlfriend has worked on and off as a sex worker during our relationship, so we've already had to renegotiate boundaries in the past. We opened the conversation, I told her I was poly. Um, she tried very hard to hold that space for me and acknowledge what I was saying, though she did become very upset. I know this would be a very difficult thing for her to hear, so I've been trying to shoulder as much work as possible. I've read through every book I can, trawled through every online resource possible. So I bought her a book that I think she would enjoy and find non-threatening about five months ago and asked her to read it. She agreed, but still hasn't read it. Every now and then I gently ask how far she's gotten. The answer is always that she hasn't read it recently, but we'll get back on it and then she'll read a couple of sections. I'm aware she's hoping on some level that we don't have to have this conversation and I'm trying to approach this slowly, but, but I'm starting to struggle. If I don't broach it again, I think we'll never talk, but when I have in the past, after that initial conversation, she becomes hostile and cold. I know she's abandonment issues for very valid reasons from her past. Uh, how do I go about this? Even if she can't do it, I'm desperate not to have to choose between who I am and the woman I love. This is where I get in trouble with some people in the polyamorous community. I don't think anyone is poly in the same way I don't think anyone is monogamy. I think poly is a relationship model. Openness is also a relationship model that's different from poly that works for some and doesn't work for others. And I think monogamous is a relationship model that works for some uh, and not for others. And it sounds like what you've determined in this four-year long-term relationship is that monogamy sexually and emotionally isn't for you that you have the capacity to love more than one person at a time and the desire to, and that is the relationship model that is the better choice for you and that you will be happier in that relationship. And maybe that's me saying that you are poly. And so you realizing that you're poly, but I don't think that anyone is naturally monogamous. 
So I guess the base set for me is everybody is capable of having sex with more than one person at a time, loving more than one person at a time, perhaps hardwired to seek out sex and affection even for more than one. So maybe I do believe that everyone is poly and then there's this monogamous relationship model that's imposed on top of that. But that's a how many angels can dance on the head of a pin conversation for another call. You need to talk to your girlfriend about what it is that you want going forward, about the price of admission you're willing to pay and the price of admission you are not willing to pay. For four years in this relationship, you have been monogamous, you've struggled with monogamy, you've had a couple of emotional affairs, and now you know yourself to be incapable of keeping a monogamous commitment, of honoring a monogamous commitment over the long haul. You have no interest in honoring a monogamous commitment over the long haul. And so the price of admission now shifts to her. Is she willing to keep you to pay the price of admission of allowing you to have concurrent sexual and emotional attachments to others. Is that the price of admission she's willing to pay to be in this relationship with you as you have paid the price of admission for four years of being monogamous? If not, if monogamy is something that she insists on, if she requires it, if that's the relationship model that works best for her, you're 30 years old. You're still young. Presumably she's still young. Presumably you're not dating Theresa May and you can part not because you hate each other, not because anybody did anything terrible, because you wanted different things in your romantic and sexual life. And it was kind of an irreconcilable difference. It's just like having kids. There's no compromise. There's no half a kid, no half a live kid. When it comes to monogamy, there's really no compromise. It means you're not fucking other people and not having intense emotional attachments to other people, period. So there's no middle ground. And if what you determine is you're poly and she's monogamy or you prefer the polyamorous relationship model and she prefers the monogamous relationship model, there's no amount of assigned reading that's going to bring her around. You'll have to part. That said, if you know people in poly relationships, it is kind of a cliche that it was one person's idea and the other person put up with it. Or went along. It was a price of admission they were willing to pay to keep that person in their life. And then their fears, maybe your girlfriend has fears around what polyamory would mean, what having concurrent romantic and sexual relationships would mean. And they find once they sort of reluctantly, PUDs I call them, poly under duress, PUDs, once PUDs agree to polyamory, they find that their fears were unfounded, that even their lives have improved, that they end up being in a relationship that brings a lot into their life that their partner didn't bring into their life and kind of completes them. And they move from being puds, poly under duress to people who are happily poly. Most people that you meet who are poly, most couples that made the transition from monogamy to polyamory, it was one person's idea. The other reluctantly went along. If they're still together two, five, 10 years later, it's because it's now what both want and it makes both happy. Maybe your girlfriend can get there. Some people only get there when it's an ultimatum. Some people only get there when it's really laid out to them that this is the only way to keep me. It's the only way that we can continue on in this relationship. And there's drama and there's angst and grief and fingernail marks on the floor because someone's being dragged toward it. And they are a pud briefly, probably under duress. And they're experimenting with whether this works for them or not. And some find it doesn't work for them and they break up. It's the end of the relationship. But some find that they do. Go out there, maybe with your girlfriend, go to some polyamorous community meetups. Talk to some couples who made the transition from monogamy to polyamory 
and maybe they can alleviate her fears. Maybe it would be more effective than assigned reading than giving her a book, actually talking to some people who've walked the walk, who've lived what you two are going through right now, this transition and came out the other side, not one getting everything he wants and the other miserably acquiescing, but came out on the other side realizing that this was better for both. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old bi female, and I started dating a guy back in the summer. Very briefly, he lives far away from me, and we knew each other from where I used to live, and we started a phone dating relationship, and eventually he came out to visit me for a week. And in that time... He confessed his love to me, and I realized I wasn't attracted to him. So we had to untangle the relationship, and I broke things off with him. And he took it really well, actually, and wanted to stay friends. And so we've remained friends in you know, our long-distance way. But it's been pretty clear over this time that there's a, an imbalance. He puts a lot more effort into staying in touch. He seems to be thinking about me a lot and is very thoughtful and and it's all good things, but it feels um, unrequited. And it's sort of recently culminated to a point where I thought, you know, I need to set a boundary, which is that for my birthday in October, he made these beautiful handmade gifts and sent them all to me in succession. And I just thought this is, you know, over the top and it's too much. I need to let him know. So what's also happening in my life is that my father is in end stage chronic kidney disease and needs a kidney stat and I was planning to give my father a kidney and it turns out that our blood is not compatible. So basically what's happening now is we're entering into a system in which we exchange kidneys with other pairs of people like us. But the thing is about this system is the wait time is long. It can be sometimes up to a year and my dad needs a kidney now because his symptoms are getting worse. So how this all connects is that that former lover that I was talking about in the beginning, he and I talked on the phone today and it was, I thought it was a good time for me to bring up boundaries and um, ask him to back off a little bit. But before we had a chance to get there, he told me that he's been researching a lot on kidney donations and wants to offer my father a kidney. So as you can imagine, I am a bit torn. Uh, on one hand, I don't want him to do it. I don't want to sort of allow that person into my space and it's, it increases our intimacy and level of interaction and connection. And of course it's just a, it's a big favor and I don't want to feel like I owe him anything. On the other hand, this is my father's life. It would increase his quality of life and also his life expectancy if we were to follow through on the offer and if it were to work out. On the one hand, if you accept his offer, you are going to be in his debt. He did save your father's life. On the other hand, if you don't accept his offer, your dad dies. On the other other hand, the third hand, it's not you who has to accept the offer. It's your father who has to accept the offer. It's a way really of putting your entire family in his debt. And maybe he's hoping your whole family will rally to his side, will root for him, will pressure you to date him again. But if that's not going to happen and never going to happen, you should just tell him that. And you should recuse yourself from the whole conversation. Look, if you want to talk to my dad about giving him a kidney, that's a conversation that you can have with my dad. It doesn't involve me because you are not my boyfriend. You are a stranger to me. We are not together. If you have this altruistic impulse that isn't going to get you into my pants, that in no way is going to make me feel obligated to date you again or see you again, please offer my dad your kidney. Or you could say all of this after he offers your dad his kidney, after his kidney is safely in your dad, if you want to err on the side of 
saving your father's life. You could have the boundaries conversation after the surgery or for your own comfort, your own peace of mind, you could have that boundary conversation with him before the surgery. Hi, Dan. I am a longtime listener in Chicago. Um, I have a question for you. My boyfriend of a year and I are about to move in together. And that's wonderful. And a year has just been a good pace and enough time you know, to get to know him. But the problem is, is that he went ahead and decorated my daughter's bedroom for her. My daughter is six. And he just took it upon himself to just do it all out, just her room the way that he saw best fit, because it has to match the house. (laughs) When my daughter saw her room, she burst into tears, screaming and crying for the last month that she didn't get to pick. Um, He's now, I'm kind of drawing the line with these Groucho Marx posters, because what little girl wants to look at pictures of an old man? I just don't know if he did this to be nice, you know, and helpful and like, oh, that's so sweet to surprise her, even though, you know, the bedroom looks like a hospital room. Or if he used it as a tool of control and if it's manipulative, like this is, I just, I want what I want. And so I just don't know whether or not I should file this away in my, my red flag filing cabinet. How do I go about talking to him about this without seeming ungrateful you know i've tried to like put stuffies and hello kitty dolls on the bed and and trying to make it more inviting you know we've bounced back from motels and domestic violence shelters and couches and talk about not being able to really choose your decor there and i just want her to feel welcomed and that this is her room but none of it reflects that it is so I would love your advice. Don't move in with this motherfucker. Period. The end. Don't move in with this motherfucker. Your six-year-old girl is crying for a month and he is putting his foot down and insisting that the room has to match the rest of the house. What kind of emotionally manipulative bullshit is that? And yeah, that's a red flag, but I think that's the first of many flags to come. What he's signaling to you is – your daughter's feelings matter less than his desire not to have a thematically consistent decoration scheme throughout the house, which no one does and is complete bullshit, but to control you and manipulate you and to separate you from your daughter. He's putting you in a position where you're having to choose between your daughter's sense of emotional security, your daughter's desires around creating finally for herself a space that's her own and his feelings and his desires He's putting you in a position where you have to choose between him and your daughter, and it won't be the last time if you acquiesce. If you want to move in with this guy, you go to him and say, I am not moving in with you if this can't be undone. It is her room. Let her decorate her room the way she would like it decorated. If he can't let Groucho Marx go, if he can't let this six-year-old girl that he's going to be the step-parent to, potentially, have her own room. In her own way, what else is he going to deny her? How many other ways is he going to find to come between you and her, to pit you against each other in the years ahead? Yeah, this is a test. It's sort of like all those times I say this is when you tell somebody one thing about you and their reaction tells you everything you need to know about them. 
you need to go tell him one thing about you, that you will not put up with him pitting you against your daughter, that you will not put up with him prioritizing a decorating scheme over your daughter's sense of safety and security. And his reaction to that, to that one thing that you're telling him, tells you everything you need to know about him. If he blows up at you, if he freaks out at you, if he continues to dig his heels in, he has told you that he is not someone that your daughter is going to be safe around emotionally, perhaps even physically. That's what early red flag signal is. Worst red flags to come down the road. So yeah, if he insists, if he blows up, if he's an asshole, and you know what? The fact that right now you're afraid to have this conversation with him is a red flag all by itself. Which is why I opened my response with don't move in with this motherfucker. But if you want to give him one last chance, go to him and say, you can't do this to a six-year-old girl. You can't do this to my six-year-old girl. If you are taking us in, if we are moving in together, you have to let go of control of this space. It is her room and she has to make it her own, for her own sense of safety and comfort, particularly after the traumas that she has endured in the last six years. Don't move her in with some dude whose first impulse is to re-traumatize your daughter, to inflict a new trauma on her. That is a fucking Mayday Parade's worth of red flags. Call us back and please let us know how that conversation with him went. And again, you're telling him one thing. You're not going to let him do this to your daughter. He's telling you everything. His response tells you everything you're going to need to know. Hi, Dan and the gang. I am calling about, I guess, a relationship issue. What it is, is uh, I'm an organic farmer growing organic vegetables, flowers, and herbs for about 12, 13 years now. And I work on somebody else's farm now, and they have guns. And currently going through a little bit of anxiety with all the things that have been happening lately. And I literally don't. I mean, I feel like making an ultimatum of it's freaking me, the expert in the field, the only one that knows what's going on, actually, on your farm, or the guns. I don't want to be around them. It's, I am, like I say, experiencing anxiety as of late, and um, I can't keep going and showing up and knowing that the guns, sure, they're in some fucking safe downstairs, but still, they pull them out, and it makes me feel completely unsafe, so is it time that we make a stand and we start dividing our, is it time that I make a stand and start separating myself from people that have guns and that feel like they're awesome and can, you know, just swing them around wherever the frick they go. So that's what my question is. I don't know what to do. This is a current event, and it's getting worse every single day. Is it time that we start distancing ourselves and saying, look, that ain't me. I don't want to show up if that's what you've got downstairs. I fucking hate guns. I would like to see the Second Amendment repealed, amended out of existence. So I'm kind of with you on the gun issue. I don't think we should tolerate open carry assholes. I don't think we should tolerate AR-15s and AK-47s. I don't think we should tolerate or allow for the private ownership of weapons of war. 
That said, about the only place that I can think that a gun might be a legitimate thing to own and to have is on a fucking farm. I have a really good friend who's a farmer here. Who I've been to his farm many times. He has guns on his farm that he uses for legitimate farmy sort of shit. He raises pigs and slaughters pigs himself. And he puts down pigs, he puts down his own animals with his own rifle. And that's why he has a gun on the farm. Also has the gun on the farm because every once in a while there's probably a predator that has to be taken out. And I don't want to hear about that. But that probably happens. He doesn't have an AR-15. He doesn't have an Uzi. He doesn't have a machine gun. He doesn't have weapons of war. But he has on the farm a gun that he uses for farm-appropriate, gotta-have-a-gun reasons. Wouldn't want him slaughtering pigs with a hammer. That would be cruel and protracted. So the question I would ask you, and you didn't offer any of this information, is those guns, they're in safes. What guns are they? And when they do haul them out, for what purpose do they haul them out? Are they hauling out a bunch of those crazy fucking weapons of war that insecure gun fondlers in America own millions of and fantasize about using them for the only thing that they're designed to be used for, which is mowing down as many humans as quickly as possible. Are those the guns that the people on this farm who are relying on your expertise own? And you don't want to be around those kinds of guns or around the people who would own those kinds of guns, people who fantasize about killing a lot of people, then yeah, you should walk and you should tell them why you're going to walk. But if the gun that they own is a shotgun or a rifle that is appropriate to farm work in a farm setting and it's in a safe when it's not being used as my friend's gun is on his farm, then I think you're being a little rigid and a little black and white and a little doctrinaire. And you need to allow for the fact that, and I need to allow for the fact and no one hates guns as much as I hate guns, especially in urban settings. We need to allow for a fact that there are places and times when private gun ownership is legitimate. I think that bar should be set a whole lot higher than it's set right now around licensing, around training, around safe storage, around penalties for people who don't store their firearms safely and then their kids blow their fucking heads off or blow the neighbor's head off or blow mom's head off. Yeah, I'm right there with you on every sort of gun control impulse and on drawing the line, particularly around people who own weapons of war, gun fondlers, open carry assholes, shouldn't be tolerated. But a farm setting? I want more information before I tell you that you should make a Norma Ray E. There's a 40-year-old pop culture reference for the kids. Norma Ray E. Self-conscious or self-righteous stand. Hey, Dan. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm a 23-year-old gay man, and I just got proposed to have a threesome with two gay men in a relationship. I'm super excited about it, but here's my concern. I kind of have taken a break from having sex. I haven't had sex in a couple of years. I was kind of promiscuous in my teenage years, and um, I pumped the brakes on that because it wasn't uh, beneficial to me, I thought. But now I'm ready to start having sex again, but I feel like I might be out of touch. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm in over my head a little bit with trying to take on two men at once when I've been uh, without sex for a few years. So. Please help me give me some advice on what I should do. Hello? Hey, it's Dan Savage. Hey, Dan. If you keep calling me like this, people will say we're in love. <laughs> it, it did take a while for us to connect and for me to get yeah. you on the phone. Yeah, it did. Uh, how are you today? I'm well and I'm free. <laughs> okay. Uh, so about your call, you know, it came in a couple of weeks ago. 
Uh, and you and I have been trying to connect. I've been trying to get you on the phone. I keep catching you at work. Finally got you on the phone when you're not at work. So I have to ask, in the last two weeks, did you have that three-way with that couple? No, I have not had it yet. So is the offer still, still on the table? Yes, it is. Okay, let's let's talk about the the, the break you took. You say that okay. uh, you, you haven't been sexually active for a couple of years because uh, you were a little out of control or acting compulsively, and maybe your sex life wasn't rewarding. Whatever you were leveraging right. in your life with your dick right. wasn't making you happy, and you pumped right. the brakes. Tell us about that decision, pumping the brakes. How did that work for you? Um, it, it came at a time in my life where I just kind of had the epiphany that it wasn't serving me, that I was not doing it because I was liberated, but because I wanted something that these men were not giving me. And so uh, through that, um, I've, you know, I just learned to love myself. I was in a better, I've been in a better place. And mm-hmm. so the, the, you know, I've been wanting to dip my toe back in it because I feel like I have, I'm more of a man now than I was then. So I'm interested in saying what that would be like to this offer came up it just felt like oh yeah this like i feel you know this feels like what i want to do um so yeah so that's why i did it because you know i wasn't serving myself but now i feel like i could have a healthier sex life i think right so in in the past you were using sex to to seek attention from men right attention you were getting was was it dehumanizing was it degrading were you just feeling used Right, exactly. It's like a come down every time I had sex. Exactly what I felt like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. the guys you were having sex with, how were you meeting them? Uh, they were. Oh God, this is a good question. I don't know people are. They were like family friends. They were people I knew from school. Um, they were a lot. A lot of it was, you know, straight identifying men. Um, that definitely did not help the, the case. That's really interesting because I expected you to say apps because that's usually right. what people think now when they think of you know someone having a lot of sex partners and they're not being a lot right. of uh, affection or meaning uh, attached to the sex and, and winding up feeling used afterwards and just being a cummed up. That these are just like anonymous strangers you're meeting uh, on apps and you're churning through a lot of strangers. But you right. were meeting people, quote unquote, the old-fashioned way yep. Through, yep. through your social networks and even still these uh, – encounters weren't gratifying you might be able to argue that it's worse because you feel like this person you know knows you on a maybe different level than somebody on the app would so mm-hmm. if this person you know knows you to a certain extent and all they want is sex you kind of do feel i think worse at least that's how i felt you know then you feel like i don't know that's just i don't know it just, that's just what it is whereas if it was an app there might be some understanding maybe that that's what it's going to be Mm-hmm. I don't know that, but that—that's what it was. They were—they were friends, people that I knew through people like the social networking. But yeah, it, it, I felt it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't what you wanted to do. I think that's important to emphasize. There are lots of people out there who want to have a lot of sex, who don't require a human connection, and find that very gratifying and fulfilling. But right. what you learned about yourself when you were having that kind of disconnected sex, sex that didn't come bundled with intimacy or affection or a connection, even if it was only a connection for a night or a weekend, was that that left you feeling worse afterwards than not having sex would have left you feeling. Absolutely. You were happier over the last couple of years not having sex than having the kind of sex you were having previously. 100%. Yeah. And and now that you're ready to dip your toe back in or your other (laughs) appendages back in or have appendages (laughs) dip back into you, along comes this couple and some people might look at that and say, okay, well, obviously any couple that, that hits on you uh, only wants you for sex, 
Is it right. going to offer you intimacy or, or connection or affection? And that's just not true. That's just a stereotype about uh, couples who are non-monogamous or, or couples who have three ways. Uh, you know, somebody that you meet one-on-one can not care about you, offer no intimacy, no connection, no affection, and leave you feeling used afterwards. There's nothing about one-on-one sex that guarantees a positive, intimate experience. And there's nothing about, you know, being the very special guest star for a couple that necessarily will deprive you of intimacy Mm -hmm. or or connection or affection. You just have to make it clear in advance that Mm -hmm. that is something that you require from your sex partners, whether you're meeting them one-on-one uh, whether they're single or whether they're partnered, whether it's a three-way or a two-way, that you're not interested in sex anymore that doesn't come also with a connection. Right. And if these guys made this offer weeks ago and are, the offer is still on the table and they're still interested in getting to know you better, maybe this would be a good way for you to to jump back in. But you need to set a high bar for them and say, you know, look – I had a lot of sex where I was just left feeling like a cum dump afterwards. And mm-hmm. I don't want to have that kind of sex anymore. So if that's what you're looking for, if you guys are looking for a third that you can kick out immediately afterward and you don't have to interact with ever again, I'm not that guy. If you're looking for maybe a recurring very special guest star, right. if you're looking for me to spend the night and for us to hang out in the morning and have breakfast and for us to connect, I might be that guy. Right. Okay. Huh. And, and, and see what they say. Okay, yeah. Because it is possible. You know, in gay land in particular, there are lots of thruples out there rattling around these days. And a lot more people are sort of open and public about being gay thruples. That their very special guest stars uh, are not just, you know, cum dumps that they invite over for booty calls when they want to have a a three-way, but people who are important to them and and, and play a role in their lives and that who's – who they value. And they connect with not just around sex. And you should just tell these guys, if that's what you're looking for, I might be open for that. If you're just looking for a cum dump, I've been there, done that, not doing that anymore. And you should say that to everybody who expresses an interest in you, whether they're partnered uh, or or single, whether an LTR is on the table or an STR is on the table. Because a short-term relationship can be fulfilling and intimate and you can connect in an STR as well. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> of course it does. It's coming from you. Uh, yeah, that. Yeah, that, I like that. I like that. I, I can do that. Be clear about your demands. Be clear about your boundaries. Yeah. And I, and I think your clarity around the sex you were having before and why it wasn't working for you uh, is really valuable. It took me a long time to learn that lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was, uh, I don't know how old you are. How old are you? Twenty three. Okay, when I was about your age, when I was a young gay man, you know, I started going to the gay bars when I was a teenager in Chicago, mm-hmm. sneaking in. And I went a little compulsively thinking, oh, if I don't go out tonight, I might miss him. Like, this might be the night that he's there. Mm-hmm. Like, Mr. Mm-hmm. Right or Mr. Right Now. If I don't go out, I'm going to miss him. And I, you know, I went out a lot and it didn't make me happy and it made me tired. It made me exhausted. I didn't like the bars. I didn't like drinking a smoke all the time. And it was unrewarding. And a lot of the sex I had then was unrewarding. And at a certain point, I went, you know what? I think I'm just going to stay home and jack off. And as soon as I came, I had no more interest in going out to the bars. So I spent a lot more time in my early 20s jacking off than I did in the bars. Uh, I would still go out occasionally, but not as compulsively. Because going out and the guys I met and the guys I was having sex with, it wasn't meeting my needs. I wasn't getting out of that what I wanted to get out of that. I didn't take a two-year hiatus like you did, (laughs) but I did pump the brakes like you did. And I think that's an important lesson for everybody, that if 
what you're doing isn't working, if it's not right into your life, what you wanted it to bring into your life, slow the fuck down. Maybe think about changing course, do something else, pump the brakes. I'm going to steal that from you. That's a really great catchphrase. Oh. I might add it to the Savage Love Arsenal. Well, thank you. But I totally agree. You got to make a connection in your life. If things don't work, you figure out why and change it. And you're right. It's just so much better to just jerk off than to feel, you know, awful. Than to feel used. Yeah, exactly. Which is not to say that you can't have a hookup, you can't have a grinder app oh, meeting with someone right. where, where there is a connection, even if it's only be a connection for an evening. You know, Terry and right. I, my husband, that was a one-night stand. I'm not saying you yeah. have to date somebody for three months. Uh, to you or to everybody, you have to date somebody for three months before you drop your I pants totally in front agree. of them. Yeah. But you want to establish, and, and the, the rule of thumb that I used when I sort of shifted course, changed course myself when I was in my mid-20s, about your age, well, I just told myself, you know what? I'm not going to have sex with anybody that I couldn't see myself dating. Oh, okay. That's good, too. Oh, yeah. then that would have been like, wow, that would have been profound. Right. And, and what that did for me was like I could determine after like a couple hours of interacting somebody in a bar or an hour whether this was somebody that I right. might want to date. You know, if it was somebody who was like, yeah, I would never date this person. They would never date me. This is not possible because uh, they're, you know, awful except they're hot or they're – you know, lying or cheating or closeted or whatever it was. I mm-hmm. didn't meet that person. So I wouldn't have sex with that person. That didn't mean that everybody I had sex with, I dated or wound up right. dating or, or, or insisted on dating me first. It was just like, they had to be a possibility right. for, 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 for a meaningful connection. And that led to some meaningful connections that were just a one night meaningful connection or a weekend of meaningful connection. Still meaningful, but using that tack, like I'm not going to sleep with anybody. I couldn't see myself dating. Didn't mean I wouldn't sleep with anybody I wasn't going to date or couldn't date, but I, I had to be able to see them, so, see them as potential boyfriends, not just right. potential fucks. I totally get that. That's great. I gift, I gift that to you. Good luck. Let us <laughs> Give us a call back. I, it'll be interesting to hear uh, what these guys say when you let them know what your conditions are and whether you still connect with them. And if you do connect with them and decide to dip, dip your toes and everything else back in, by, ha- by having a three-way with a with a partnered uh, gay couple, I'd love to hear how that went for you. If it goes well, if it's positive or negative experience, uh, give us an update. Give us a call back. Okay, Dan, I will. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. I'm a 44-year-old heterosexual woman living in a large city in the Midwest. I'm in a wonderful relationship with my boyfriend, and we've recently opened up our relationship to include other couples. It's been great so far. We've met some very compatible people who share our kinks. We recently traveled to another city for a music festival where we rented a basement apartment through a popular room sharing app. During that weekend, we invited a couple over who we've been with before. They had gotten a babysitter, spent a couple hours with us, and a great time was had by all. When I received my review from the homeowner, she wrote that she heard our loud sexual activity and was sickened to think about the task of having to clean up after us. She said she felt uncomfortable in her own home and that I should have used better judgment. I immediately felt ashamed about the evening, as well as the new lifestyle that me and my boyfriend had really begun to enjoy. But then after a long talk with my boyfriend, we started to think. We probably could have been more considerate about the thin walls, although it was between the hours of 8 and 10 p.m. According to her house rules, it was okay to have guests over, and we did clean up, 
took out our garbage that included our condoms and stripped down the bed of linens and put them in the hamper. We agreed we weren't ashamed of our activity with our friends, but felt that this homeowner, who was a young woman in her mid-30s, she had said that her husband was out of town on a guide trip and they had, they had, they had no kids, somewhat sex-shamed us. I wonder if she would have had said anything if she knew just me and my boyfriend were down there having sex. Also, I host my home on this room sharing app and I surrender some privacy knowing people are on vacation and have sex and masturbate and pick their nose and so on and so on. So Dan, we need your opinion. We're new to our new lifestyle and we're wondering if we broke some sort of rule or was she out of line? You rented a basement apartment. The rules allowed you to have guests over and presumably there was nothing in the rules preventing you or banning you from fucking the guests you had over during reasonable hours, 8 to 10 p.m., perfectly reasonable. So, yeah, it seems like your host overreacted and indeed sex-shamed you both or all four of you. That said, she heard you fucking. She said she was sickened at the thought of having to clean up. Of course, she didn't have to clean up. You guys were responsible. You cleaned up after yourselves, but maybe she was just sickened at the thought of it when she heard you fucking, thinking you were swinging from the chandeliers. And there's a lot of people out there who are really judgy about couples or about group sex, about non-monogamous relationships. And it sounds like she's one of them. Presumably she would have been fine if she overheard a little bit of fucking in her house, if it was just the two of you down there. But when she knew there were four of you down there and she overheard fucking, she freaked out because what kind of person has group sex? Well, a terrible person. That's what kind of person has group sex. And a lot of people believe that and continue to believe that because most of the people in their lives who are in open relationships aren't out. So they know people who would do this, but they don't know they know them because most people, most straight people like you, most straight people in open relationships aren't out about it because they fear being judged in just this way, in the same way that this woman judged you, said you were sickening. Assume that you too, if you were the kind of people who would fuck another couple or have an orgy, were the kind of people who are going to kick holes in the wall and pee in the tub and shit on the floor. Because, of course, somebody who would do that kind of perverted sex thing can't be trusted not to wipe their ass on your duvet cover. So if I had to issue a ruling here, yeah, you were sex shamed by your host. That said, you got to know that in this sort of circumstance, you're in someone's house. And with these stereotypes and fears about dangerous sex maniacs and the way they behave, that you were likely to be judged this way. The odds that you were going to wind up renting a room in a house in some little town where there was a music festival from somebody who was group sex positive, really small, vanishingly small. So if you didn't want to risk this kind of review, you needed to be a little sneakier. I'm not saying that she was in the right. I'm not saying she didn't sex shame you. I'm just saying that this was – a semi-predictable outcome of a noisy four-way in someone's house, even though you rented the room, even though the rules allowed for it, a predictable outcome doesn't make it any less of an injustice. It was an injustice. You've been done wrong, but done wrong in kind of a predictable way in a way that perhaps you could have anticipated. So in the future, maybe get a hotel room where anything goes or be a little bit quieter and let that be part of the fun, that the four-way is a sneak. It's a, something you got to get away with. You're putting one over on the proprietor of the little house that you're staying in. That can be sexy to be naughty to break the rules. 
Anyway, there's nothing wrong with you. Don't take it to heart. But in the future, maybe a hotel. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk to an old friend of the Savage Lovecast. Cameron Esposito is a stand-up comedian and writer who, along with her wife, Rhea Butcher, will be releasing a comedy album recorded live on their recent back-to-back tour. The album comes out December 12th on A Special Thing Records. Hey, Cameron, how you doing? Um, I'm doing great. It's actually the 8th of December. I don't, I mean, probably we gave you the wrong information. <laughs> <laughs> well, it comes out December 8th. Everyone should pick it up. Uh, if you follow Cameron and Rhea on Instagram, as I do, it, it kind of felt like you were along for the tour. Tell us about the tour. Tell us, and for people who aren't familiar with you, for people who just started listening to the Lovecast or didn't catch your terrific show on CISO, Take My Wife, who the fuck are you? Yeah, so I am a stand-up comic, which is a really hard job to have right now because it feels like Twitter is really just a news source. So I will say I'm like, I guess a, uh, an unprofessional reporter now is also what I am on the internet, uh-huh. as, as are you. Um, but also our back-to-back tour was, you know, you take your wife, the two of you get in a bus, and you drive the country doing stand-up together and separately. That's how all normative relationships operate, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's very Ozzy and Harriet. It's very heteronormative of you to travel the country in a bus with your same-sex spouse <laughs> doing stand-up comedy. That, that is the way it's done. I was, absolutely. I, was... I mean, we're, we're taking it back. We're taking it for the queers. For years, that sort of vaudevillian, you know, husband-wife duo, all we could think was like Lucy Ricky. You know, that's us. I was going to say, I was literally just about to say, you're kind of the Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz of lesbianism. Hopefully your relationship will last longer than Lucy and Desi's did, although they kind of reconciled later in life and were partners again of sorts uh, and loved and supported each other at the end. But you kind of are our like married, same-sex comedy duo and and killing it and and meeting with such great success. I said, you know, for people who don't know who the fuck you are, but I think everybody knows who you are now. They must. Oh, that's really nice. You know, it was a wonderful time to be out on the road. You and I were just talking before we started recording about how every day seems like we're being barraged by awful news. And one thing that still stands is that looking at other human beings in the eyes, like going out on the road and really connecting with the audiences that we got to perform in front of was incredible right now. Because, this, you know, especially for the for the queer community, but for anybody that wanted to come see comedy, it's just like this moment of, I don't know, seeing each other. Does that make yeah, sense? I think I, I think that's so important. I think anything that provides people the communal experience that takes you away from your phones, takes you away from the Twitter feed that now dominates our lives. From the, You know, I run to Twitter every morning to see if the world's blown up, to see what the president has done or said in kind of a panic. And I find myself now leaving the house without my phone to go to comedy shows. Uh, We just had the Hump Film Festival premiere for the 2018 tour in Seattle and Portland. And just people coming together in spaces and theaters to laugh and relax and be reassured that everyone hasn't lost their minds, that the world is not collapsing and that there are people still who are interested in not just comedy, but life and pleasure and joy and can find joy even now, like truffle pig out the joy even now in this dystopian present that we're all living through. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also add, you know, you and I are lucky enough um, at this point in our careers, we've both been working for a long time. And so we can charge like a nice ticket price and people will pay that. But the other thing that is great about some 
first of all, queer events and then also comedy events. And not that all comedy is going to make you feel rad. It isn't all going to make you feel rad. But there's always something free going on in your town in those two categories. Like there's always some coffee shop you could go to to just be around queer folks. Or there's always some like improv show or open mic that is free. And so I just would recommend figuring out what that is in your community. And if you figured that out, uh, what, 15 years ago, how long ago did you start doing stand up? Yeah, I've been doing, yeah, I've been doing comedy professionally for like 15 years. Yeah. So now, now you have to pay uh, a good ticket price. And I think a deserved ticket price to see Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher perform or perform together or separately. But 15 years ago, you could have caught you guys for free just starting out. And so if you get out of the house now, you can find tomorrow's Cameron Esposito working for free. <laughs> that's, that's right. Also, Rhea and I put out a weekly podcast that's called Put Your Hands Together that's free. And then I also do a podcast, um, and that's a stand-up podcast, Put Your Hands Together is. And then I also do a podcast um, called Query that's like hour-long chats with people in the queer community. And I really recommend podcasting because if I don't leave my phone at home, what I'm doing is I'm putting a podcast in my ears and I'm like going and walking uh, through my neighborhood or through my city and just like being around other people and then putting somebody uh, who helps me feel good in, in my ears. So that's what you've been doing for me the last, oh, I don't know, <laughs> however many years of my life. And you're returning the favor now that you're podcasting. I'm really enjoying Query. Uh, it's one of oh, those thanks, sort man. of new media uh, things that, that, that really have created a, a space for, for queer people to uh, share their wisdom, their insight, their perspective, and their history. I think of Query in the same, with the same affection that I think of like LGBT history on Instagram that so many queer people are cut off from you know, the wisdom of their elders or the wisdom of their peers or, or queer history because it isn't taught and it's hard to find. And yet now we have social media that allows us to do things like create podcasts where we're speaking with and to each other without filters and without having to worry about getting it past some straight gatekeeper. Oh my God. I mean, just hearing you say that is about to make me burst into tears because there's like nothing I care more about in the world than not continuing to lose our history. You know, for, for so many years, we did not have the choice whether or not to lose our history. We had, you know, no power to, to make change ourselves, or, you know, we had to hide who we were or like the AIDS epidemic, um, mm-hmm destroyed generations. And so now it's like we're in this moment where for for pretty cheap or for free, like LGBT history on, on Instagram, I mean, I think those are just like sourced images that they're doing the research to support. That's amazing. I mean, it's, amazing. it's such a cool time to live right now because we can capture what our community really is. I'm that, yeah. like over the moon about it. I'm old and gay, and when I first came out, it was possible to be completely ignorant of queer history. You had to be so you had to be self motivated. You had to either want to learn, or you had to fall in with people who wanted to teach you. And I'm really grateful to my first boyfriend who wouldn't keep seeing me if I didn't read Society and the Healthy Homosexual, which was this <laughs> book that kind of blew my mind. It was the first sort of look at uh, empirical look at the mental health of of gay people. And what they found was that they were no less healthy than anyone else. And that previous studies had all been gay people in prison and gay people in 
institutions, gay people who had been consigned to mental institutions and tortured or were broken already and sent. And so all the evidence that they found that gay people were sick and demented and, and damaged was because they were only looking at people that the culture had already damaged. And this book, my first boyfriend was like, I won't keep seeing you until you read this book because I was still kind of reeling from coming out as a teenager in the 70s in Chicago. And that's how you used to learn. But now, now, it's there's this spigot that's been opened for queer people online with podcasting, with Instagram, with Tumblrs, where it's all so much more easily accessible. And I'm, it's really a thrill. You know, you're, you're such a professional success, Cameron, you know, with the TV show and the comedy and the touring, and that you're taking the time to create uh, the Query podcast, which is – you know, it's great and, you know, you have your sense of humor firing at all times, but it's it's meaty and chewy and it's not about comedy. It's about it's about passion and it's about uh, insight, really, uh, and, and politics and argument. And it's great. And whenever somebody who could be not doing something like that is doing something like that and then you've already got this audience and they'll come along to you into that space and, and, and hear the people that you speak to, it's such a contribution. It's such a way of giving back. Oh. Okay, well, good baby. What a day I'm having. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I used to read when I was first coming out, and I lived in Boston, and I was at a university where if you came out, um, you could be kicked out of school. I read your column and like gleaned through. You know, you're answering these questions that apply to all sorts of different people. And it was really like reading between the lines to figure out what kind of possible future I could have, because you would talk to people who were partnered and who had been partnered for a long time or, or just give advice to folks that was beyond coming out. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for the queer community, because we've been, our stories have been told by folks outside of the community or had to pass through, like you said, gatekeepers, we've centered the trauma of coming out as like what queer stories are. And I just am really excited because the excitement of coming out and what your life was like, you know, um, when you were a kid and you understood yourself and the goals that you can have as an adult and the relationships that we can have, like those stories are really starting to be told. I mean, honestly, for the first time in the abundance that I see them. And it's like, it's just really awesome because it just didn't, didn't used to be something that was publicly available. I mean, it it's sort funny. of still isn't. It's funny, you know, people talk about coming out and often that was the only story anybody wanted to share or certainly straight people wanted to hear because everything that came after yeah. coming out was about relationships and life. And that's much more complicated. It's also much more universal, but I'm always telling people, you, you, know, you know, I think our coming out stories are this, this touchstone, you know, it's our hero's journey. We all went on it. There's no being openly queer without coming out. And it's the one thing all queer people have in common who are openly queer and, and out is that coming out narrative, that moment. But I'm always saying to kids who are coming out, like coming out is not the end of your problems. It's the beginning of different ones. And there's all this other stuff to unpack and talk about and live through and get through all these other dismounts to stick over the course of your life that come after the coming out. That's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of your, of your, like your, the rest of your life. And we should be able to tell those stories too. And you told them very well in Take My Wife, your TV series on CISO. There isn't a second season now, right? You were renewed for a second season, but then CISO shut down. Any chance we're going to get to see that second season? You know, it's a weird 
uh, position that we find ourselves in because we wrote and shot and edited the second season of that show. And then our platform uh, went away, as you said, CISO went away. And so NBC Universal owns this second season of the show and it doesn't have a home right now. And I think we're sort of living, this is the flip side to what we've been talking about being so positive about um, like sort of the democratization of the entertainment industry and the internet. So the flip side is things are popping up and then going away and Mm. not every show that's awesome has a future or a perfect home. And so we're still looking for, I mean, it's a really complicated thing that isn't just on Rhea and I, there's like many people uh, that work with us that are involved in this, but we don't have an answer. Isn't that strange? It is like strange. Like there's just a show that lives somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Like one Catholic yeah. to another Catholic, your show is in limbo. It's floating it's around in limbo, in limbo with it's the unbaptized babies waiting to find a home. <laughs> um, hey, because we have you on the phone and we always like to throw a question at our guests uh, who come on to talk about other stuff, uh, will you tackle a listener question with me right now? Oh, I would love to. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling because I'm having a bit of a problem. Um, I'm um, a marijuana user and I smoke pretty frequently, but I'm noticing that it's really getting in the way of the sex that I'm having with my boyfriend. When I get high, my mouth gets dry and so does everything else. Do you have any suggestions um, of things that I can try to do um, to kind of help out with that situation? The one thing I forgot to mention is I hate lube. Um, it doesn't matter what the base is or what it's made of. I just can't stand it. So if you have any other recommendations, I would really appreciate it. All right, Cameron, what's your advice? Oh, no, I feel I look, I listened to what you said. I don't want you to think I didn't listen, caller. But I think at the very end, she sort of tosses in like almost as a throwaway um, that she hates lube, all kinds of lube. And so that is a specific thing that is created to solve exactly this problem problem. I mean, not just like a pot induced dryness, but a dryness in general. Um, And there are so many different types and there's so many different like amounts you could use, right? (laughs) Like if you're, if it, if it doesn't, if it bothers you because it feels squishy or weird, um, I would just say like, I wonder about this person's level of experimentation with that. Mm -hmm. Like, I almost want to be like, get back in there, like get back in there and try again. If the pot makes you dry and you don't want to use lube, then you can't smoke the pot, period, the end of story. But I do think that the the, the lube, the aversion to lube is really interesting. You know, th- there's this word that there's no uh, flip for, emasculating. Like what's effeminating? What's the, what's the flip of emasculating? But, you know, there's a lot of guys out there who have these like emasculation sort of worries about using Viagra, about taking a boner pill. It means their boner isn't authentic somehow and that they're, you know – reliant on this this drug this intervention to achieve the boner and so they're somehow less manly and i wonder if her hang up around using lube isn't the flip of that if feminizing or whatever that other word is that doesn't actually exist because only masculinity is so fragile that we need a word for it being shattered right does she feel like she's not fully a woman if she has to rely on an assist to be lubricated because becoming wet is like the evidence of female arousal it is like the the equivalent of the erection, it is actually anorexion. Um, and so if she needs the bottle of lube by the side of the bed to be functional, 
maybe she feels in some way that she's falling short of what a woman and her junk are supposed to do on their own. And that's the hang up. And she needs to get over that. It could totally be that. I would also say that, I mean, I'm going to speak, <laughs> I'm going to be very honest as somebody <laughs> on this, on this uh, phone call right now who has a vagina. Um, it's, there's like a particular sensation that is going on when you use lube that is like, it doesn't actually feel like what your body creates. It's mm. like, you know, more um, viscous. I'm sorry. I'm getting very, <laughs> I'm getting very real, but um, it does. It's different. Like it's something you have to get used to. It's also like cold. I mean, there's, I think there are huh. some sensation things that could be, an issue here too. So that's kind of why I was saying like, I'm not, not listening to you. I'm trying to listen to you caller. But I also think that a lot of times when there's a sensation that doesn't feel right to us at first, mm -hmm. it could feel right to us. That's kind of where, where I took this is like, okay, if you so really are into pot and you're trying this thing and you know that it doesn't feel great to you, but you want to keep, using pot, I wonder if you could just like try again a couple different ways and see if there's something that doesn't eventually work for you. Does that makes sense. Sometimes, sometimes the trick is just telling yourself this feels different. Not yes, wrong. That's this exactly right. Different. You're exactly right. Yeah. Cameron Esposito, the new album coming out, it's called Back to Back and it comes out not December 12th, but December 8th. Yeah, it'll be on a special thing records, but you'll be able to get it everywhere that Albums are sold to like Amazon, iTunes, everywhere, Spotify. And you're going to want to pick it up because Cameron and Rhea are both hilarious. And here's uh, me. You can't see me, but I'm crossing my fingers and hoping them, holding them up to the microphone, crossing my fingers, hoping we finally get to see the second season of Take My Wife and hopefully a third season as well. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone, Cameron. Really appreciate it. It's always great to talk with you. Yeah, Dan, have a great day, okay? Hey, good morning. I am a 28-year-old bisexual male from... Uh, Dallas, Texas. I was a victim of a of an assault that happened to me over the weekend. Um, Friday night, uh, I was completely sucker punched while standing at a urinal uh, by some guy, uh, and uh, he was yelling things. After it happened, I was pretty dazed, but the only word I was able to make out was "faggot." He he called me a faggot, and I made me realize that I'm now I'm having trouble coming to terms with something that I've realized I've had trouble with my whole life knowing that I'm bisexual and that's that I don't know how to reconcile my sexuality with my masculinity is this just like typical bullshit male ego that like I I'm just still too immature to let go of and if not, is there a way to reconcile these two things? So some asshole in a bar, probably some drunk asshole who couldn't see straight, walks up to you at a urinal, punches you, and calls you a faggot, and now you doubt your masculinity. Why are you doubting your masculinity? You should be doubting that person's humanity, not yourself. You were attacked by an asshole. Why are you looking in the mirror and faulting yourself unless you think that on some level, unmasculine men deserve that kind of abuse. In which case, get thee to a therapist, go, and unpack that shit. 
There's nothing unmasculine about being bi. There's nothing unmasculine about being gay. And you know what? There's nothing unmasculine about embracing and accepting. I think it's very masculine to embrace and accept your feminine traits and feminine characteristics. I think it's rather masculine not to be terrified of the ways in which you transgress against cliche, bullshit, culturally loaded ideas about what a man is or isn't. And it's possible that your girlfriend, hopefully your girlfriend, is into the man you are and maybe is into the man you are because the man you are is a little more complicated than just some knuckle-dragging idiot. You think she'd rather be with the kind of guy who walks up to a guy at a urinal in a bar and punches him in the face and calls him a faggot? Hopefully not. And if she was into that kind of guy, would you be into her? No. Stop picking yourself apart. You are the victim of a hate crime. The asshole here, the person who should be arrested, the person who should be wondering what the fuck is wrong with them, is your attacker, not you. You're fine. Hi, Dan. I'm a very happily married mid-30s mother of two. My husband is amazing. He has seen me through so much in our 15-year relationship, including a college rape. That was devastating to me in so many ways, including my sexuality, mostly my sexuality. I was a virgin by choice through my teen years, and so the rape was my first time having intercourse. So I had made out with high school boys and had experienced varying levels of intimacy. It took me years to become more comfortable sexually. I had physical pain and emotional trauma, and I really should have sought professional help. But I didn't, and my husband was patient and loving for so many years. It wasn't until four years ago when I had my first child that my body and mind really reset things. Having something beautiful exit my vagina was the most healing thing ever. Since then, my sex life with my husband has drastically improved in quantity and quality. We're both happy that way, um, and his patience has really paid off for him. He gets laid a lot more. Now for the problem. There's a guy at my place of work, of course. There's always a guy. Um, we've worked together for five years and always maintained friendly but appropriate boundaries. The thing is, I need to sleep with them. Like, I just need to. It's this intense drive that I've never felt before. I spent so many years traumatized from my rape that I didn't really see the world sexually. He's the only man I've ever felt this way for. Um, I really start to feel kind of wet in his presence, and no one's ever had that effect on me before. I don't want an affair. I really don't. I don't even know him emotionally. I just need to sleep with him. Um, but I, I don't know what to do because I'm not going to do that. Um, I felt this way about him from basically meeting him, even before childbirth had fixed my issues or resolved some of them. Um, it's not going away. I've tried thinking about him with my husband. I've tried avoiding him at work. I honestly don't know what to do. I'm not going to jeopardize my marriage, and my husband is not okay with non-monogamy. I've sort of started to explore those talks. Anyway, please help me. Sometimes I get a question and I think, I can't say, I can't, I can't say into a microphone what I'm actually thinking right now because I'm going to get in so much trouble, but... Here we go. And I'm just going to set this down in a very unspecific way, lay this out. Uh, and this isn't necessarily related to your question, caller. I believe, and I have said a hundred million times, that if you're with somebody for 30 or 40 or 50 years and you only cheated on them once or twice, you were pretty good at being monogamous. Monogamy is the only thing that humans do where we require from them a perfection. It needs to be perfectly executed over decades for anyone to regard themselves as any good at that thing. When you're talking about monogamy, anything else humans do, you can suck at it every once in a while. You can fall on your fucking face and then get up and keep doing that thing and be good at it. You can be the world's greatest snowboarder, gold medals around your neck and fall and get up and still have all your gold medals. And everybody still says, hey, you're the world's greatest snowboarder. Hey, we know you fell. 
on that slope, you, you, you attempted that trick of, you know, that half pipe or 35 years of monogamy and you fell that one time, but okay, otherwise you were pretty good at it. And you can infer from everything I've just said that I might be tempted to give my blessing here, that, that you could rationalize running off and fucking this guy despite your husband's feelings about monogamy and not being into openness and not smiling on this. And I, I, I'm concerned about you doing that. You know, the the standard of, oh, you're with somebody 50 years, you only cheat on them once or twice, you're pretty good at being monogamous. That's looking back from the at the with them for 50 years point, looking back over the decades together that have already passed. And you can't know if you go fuck this guy that you're going to make it to that 50 year point with your husband. This is a huge risk you're potentially taking here. Your feelings for this guy are really powerful. A lot of gasoline on the ground. Right? And if you start throwing matches around, if you fuck the dude, you don't know what could happen next. Your feelings for him could explode. You could fall deeply in love with this guy and keep fucking him and keep fucking him and keep fucking him. And it won't be this one-off. You cheated once and looking back over the decades, hey, you're pretty good at monogamy. There's that one time you fell trying to execute that trick, fell on that half pipe, world's greatest snowboarder. But you got up and then you kept snowboarding. You kept being great at it. You might not make it to that point because – what if? What if you should wind up falling in love with this guy, leaving your husband for this guy, tearing your home apart, traumatizing your kids to be with this guy? Or what if your husband finds out that you fucked this guy just that one time and it was only going to be that one time and you fucked that guy that one time and realized you know, everything that you were risking and you satisfied your curiosity and you had that kind of sex, this powerful urge to fuck this guy, this guy who when you just stand next to him, you get wet and you've never had that experience and you want to like fully experience it by putting a dick in you. And your husband leaves you and it's over. And you, you didn't leave him. You didn't fall in love with the guy. Maybe you fucked the guy once. You're like, yep, done. And your husband finds out a week later or two months later or a year later. And then you don't make it to 50 years because he's out because he feels so betrayed and so violated because he's one of those people in our culture, as so many people in our culture do, who defines a single infidelity as a relationship extinction level event, not something that can be forgiven or got past. A lot of risk here. So when I talk, as I often do, about, hey, you know, if you with somebody 50 years, you only cheat on one, pretty good at monogamy, you can read into that a hall pass to cheat on somebody once or twice in that long-term relationship that you're in. But you can't know and you can't predict and I can't know and I can't predict what the repercussions of that one cheat might be. You might not make it to that 50-year point where then you'll look back and see that one time that you cheated in the perspective of all these other decades together of perfectly executed monogamy otherwise. So I'm not telling you to do it. I'm telling you you get to make your own choices. I would hope though, if you're a listener, hopefully your husband's a listener. Well, actually, hopefully your husband isn't a listener because I wouldn't want your husband to hear you say that this is the only guy you've ever stood next to and gotten wet about in your life because that might be painful for him to hear. But if your husband is familiar with the monogamish thing, the monogamish term. Monogamish doesn't mean you fuck other people even. Monogamish for some couples just means we acknowledge that we are occasionally attracted to other people and that doesn't threaten our relationship. We're not policing each other for evidence of what we both accept to be true. Of course you're attracted to other people sometimes as am I. You can start with a conversation about that. If you are able to be honest with each other about he's sometimes attracted to other people, you're sometimes attracted to other people and the question is whether you act on those attractions and the answer because you have a monogamous commitment is no. You can have a conversation though about what it means that there's this person who you are attracted to in a way that kind of drives you to distraction and you don't know exactly what to do with this. You know what you would like to do but you don't because you honor the commitment that you've made to him. 
but you should risk having the conversation with your husband. Because a lot of people 10, 15, 20 years into a relationship, they haven't had additional conversations about monogamy. They haven't opted back into it. At the beginning of the relationship, they said, monogamous or it's over. I would leave. I would never be cheated on. And they may feel differently 20 years later or 15 years later. They may be less attached to that. They may feel less insecure about your commitment to them and are less likely to bundle that together with sexual fidelity. If you haven't had a conversation with your husband about monogamy, about one-offs, about hall passes, about a three-way with the hot guy from work or whatever in 20 years, maybe have that conversation again. He might have an answer now that would surprise you and allow you to have him, have your family and have this one off too or not, but you don't know until you ask. I'm calling in response to episode 579 and the guy who was looking for insults to use in place of pussy because that is such a loaded term. I'd recommend that you try out wimp, coward, dingus, twerp, Loser, idiot, shithead, poser, yellow belly, scumbag, clown, weakling, wastoid, and even turd. While it's great that you want to cycle pussy out of rotation in your vocabulary, make sure you're also thinking about why and how you were using that word in the first place and whether you were contributing to toxic masculinity and the idea that men shouldn't show vulnerability or uh, lack of physical prowess. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 579, where a male caller called in and said that his girlfriend didn't like being called dude. Here is why. Young men use dude as a way to convey a very stilted emotional relatedness. And using dude is a way to avoid actually being intimate, unlike used in broad cities, where it ends up having a subversive, endearing quality to it. As a heterosexual woman, being called dude by your partner is actually an avoidance of intimacy, not an expression of it. Hi, I'm calling about episode 579 and that guy whose girlfriend had a problem with being called dude. Personally, I feel empowered when I'm called dude. The way I see it, every time I'm called dude, I feel like I can hear super small cracks zigzagging across the glass ceiling. And that as women where we previously weren't allowed, we've been welcome. I've been fortunate to be put on a pedestal by a bunch of guys that I dated, and um, it's lonely up there. Being precious can be exhausting. Instead of being on that pedestal and admired from afar, I want to be respected in person. So I'll gladly climb down from that precious pedestal to be a part of the dude club. And in relationships, being called dude implies a certain trust and intimacy. We aren't just lovers. I'm not just precious to you, but instead we're friends and we're partners. Yes, dude is historically masculine, but it remains just barely masculine these days. Ladies, let's be like Abby and Alana, really charming, adorable dudes. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. It is the holiday gift-giving season. It is upon us, and we have two great gift ideas for you here at the Savage Lovecast. Of course, you can gift the Magnum Edition, the twice-as-long ad-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, to the Savage Lovecast fans on your list. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on Gift. And... ITMFA, t-shirts, buttons, hats, lapel pins, bumper stickers, impeach the motherfucker already gear, all proceeds benefit the American Civil Liberties Union, the International Refugee Assistance Project, and planned parenthood orders in by December 11th. You should have by 
Christmas, go to www.itmfa.org, order some merch, help three great organizations that are fighting the Trump agenda. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Cameron Esposito on Twitter at Cameron Esposito. And look for her new album, Back to Back, out this Friday. And be sure to listen to Blabbermouth. If you like my political rants at the top of the show, that is The Stranger's other podcast available where fine podcasts are available. And so much at the end of the show this week. Join me in Portland on Thursday, December 21st at Revolution Hall for a holiday special, which I've named Happy Holidays. Get your tickets now. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events for more details. All right. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week on installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having me.